I say it that way because I don't think a hierarchical structure is even a category of thought for Adam and Eve at this point before the fall. I think because of sin, though, it's, it's hard for us to conceive of such a harmony in the marriage relationship. But nonetheless, Eve's presence completed the missing half of Adam that was not good, and then it became good. Chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So there's the divine-human relationship, the human-human relationship, and then there's the human-creation relationship. The responsibility of chapter 1, verse 28, being fruitful and multiplying, subduing, having dominion, or exercising dominion. And the work of 2.15, serving and guarding the garden. These were fundamental to the human vocation. But the labor involved wasn't one of frustration. It was a labor still. It was work, but it was a labor of delight. It was a labor of purposeful fulfillment. So last week, we asked the question, what is sin? And we answered it by saying, sin is rejecting and ignoring God and the world that he created. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is when a person places himself, herself, in the position of God as autonomous from God. And then we ask the question as well, why do we sin? And the reason we sin, we said, Genesis 3 teaches us a truth about the nature of humanity. Adam and Eve, in the best possible place, under the best possible conditions, still made the moral choice to disobey God. So the Genesis account is showing us that if we were in the same situation, we would do the same thing. And so why do we sin? We sin because we choose disobedience. We sin because we choose our own way, and we, like Adam and Eve, mistake our independence from God for freedom. But the reality is it only gives us bondage. Independence from God only gives us bondage. But in considering all of this, one thing that still strikes me as puzzling is the question, what does it mean to be human? I just want to be transparent and say that's a question that I really wrestled with. I'm not going to give you the answer this morning. We don't have time uh, if we're going to focus on the rest of the text. But it is an interesting thing to think through as we think about Adam and Eve in the beginning, the quality of life, who they were in their relationship with God, what changed as a result of sin. So we pick up in verse 14 of chapter 3. Verse 14 of chapter 3, follow along as I read. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Last week we saw these three scenes unfold of temptation, the fall, and the confrontation. This week we see two scenes unfold. This week we see the devastating effects of sin carried out in the world. That is, we see the consequence of Adam and Eve's sin. And so in scene one, we have judgment announced in verses 14 through 19. God's attention is first directed at the serpent, and his curse on the serpent is twofold. First, we understand the serpent to be one of God's created animals, and as one who's more crafty than all the other animals, it makes sense now that he is now cursed above all the other animals. You will crawl on your belly. Maybe this meant that the serpent once had wings, or maybe the serpent once had legs. Or maybe it's just a metaphor to speak about God's judgment. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Whatever the case, clearly the pronouncement is one of humiliation and one of condemnation on the serpent, leveling the most severe judgment against this creature. Cursed are you above all the other animals. Secondly, we see that there will be enmity, that is, hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, the seed of the woman, according to the Hebrew understanding, is the human race, and the seed of the serpent is the spiritual forces of evil. The battle will rage between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is what they would be understanding in the Genesis text. The battle will rage between the two seeds, and the effects of the battle will be deathly blows, a heel strike, and a head crush. The verb used there is the same. He, he will bruise your heel, and, and or the serpent will bruise the heel of, of the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. The battle lines between good and evil have been drawn in Genesis 3. The battle lines between those who follow God, seeking to walk in obedience, that is, his people, and those who reject God and walk under the sway of evil. And really, the clincher is we only have to look one chapter forward to see how this begins to take effect in humanity. We only have to look to Genesis chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, to find the next occurrence of evil unbridled and unchecked. The Lord tells Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, listen, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. It's for you. Its desire is to consume you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, verse 8. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Consequence seen. Consequence felt. Instead of being ruled into submission, evil has now corrupted and overturned the blessing of being in God's place under God's rule, experiencing the fullness of God's blessing. The terrible consequences of Adam and Eve's sin is that now sin rules the day and the struggle against evil is real and it's fierce. So Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against, get it, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a war, and the spiritual forces of evil want nothing more than to destroy those who walk in obedience to God. Evil has entered the world and is running free. And in verse 16, God turns his attention to the woman. But he speaks to her differently than he does with the serpent. God doesn't curse Eve, which I think says something about mitigated blessing. The blessing of being fruitful and multiply, as we see in Genesis 1, hasn't been removed from Adam and Eve, but their pain has greatly increased. We've already noted the presence of pain and childbearing before sin, but now the consequence of sin is that this pain has greatly intensified. Any labor and delivery nurse, as well as any mother who birthed a child, will testify of the pain of giving birth. I personally don't know what it's like, but I've been told it's really bad, right? This pain is intensified. But it goes beyond that. The Hebrew text is speaking of more than just that pain in the midst of delivery. In the Hebrew text, the pain experienced in childbearing, it's broader than just at this point of giving birth. The reference is to the whole experience of mothering. The potential for great pain is there because the consequences of evil have free reign. Again, we might look to chapter 4 in the episode of Cain and Abel and note the devastating effect that Cain's action would have on any family. What mother could bear the thought of one of her own sons taking the life of the other? Pain has been introduced into Eve's mothering, childbearing, her parenting. The second strophe of verse 16 continues with the second consequence one writer puts it, to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. The text says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, husbands, I just want to caution you not to take a stare over at your wife, not to peek in her direction. Just keep your elbows right by your side. 
Don't move them. (laughs) So contrary to what we might think, the desire here is one of control. Contrary to what some men might want to think, it doesn't refer to an intimate desire. It's more in line with what we see in Genesis 4-7 where the Lord tells Cain again, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. And so what we see in this kind of second strophe of God's judgment speaking this sentence on Eve in verse 16 is that just as sin desires to master Cain, so the woman desires to master her husband, to control, to consume him. If we think back to Genesis 1, the the good design of the human pair was seen in the, the husband and wife having a partnership, but now because of their sin, they struggle against one another so that she tries to dominate him and he tries to rule over her. Adam and Eve are no longer blind to their bent toward self-satisfaction. They seek dominance over each other. Here's what we learn. This is what living independently of God looks like. This is what living independently of God looks like. This explains the common human dilemma in marriage and the relationship. Instead of, instead of living in a partnership, Adam and Eve will now live in, in this tension Adam will relate to Eve, a husband to a wife, as part of the creation that he's to rule or to exercise dominion over. It's part of the fall. But hear me out, this, it doesn't mean that it, it has to be this way. We can work and we should work in our marriages to guard against such contention, such destruction. We should and can work in our marriages to be filled by the Holy Spirit, live within the, the, the leading of the Holy Spirit to model marriage after what the New Testament picture gives us in Ephesians chapter, chapter 4. In verses 17 and 19, God turns his attention to Adam. And when he turns his attention to Adam, he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've done this thing, cursed is the ground because of you. Notice that neither Adam nor Eve are cursed, but it's the serpent that's cursed, and it's the ground that God curses. And what God is saying is no longer will the ground easily yield its produce to you. Now in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The same word here describing Adam's pain in verse 17 is the same word that describes Eve's pain in verse 16. And what we see is that God's punishment adds a new degree of frustration to work. The consequences of the fall are observed by the preacher of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, you can follow along on the screen. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, Yet he will be a master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity, meaningless. So I turned 
about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even the night, even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. As a preacher looks under the sun, he sees the world affected by the curses from the fall. And he notes that work has become toil. It's become filled with frustration. No matter how successful one becomes in life, the reality that he understands is that death still comes to us all. This is the indication of verse 19, is it not? This is what you will suffer, Adam. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. As we move from the first scene, the scene of judgment announced, into the second scene, the scene of judgment executed in verses 20 through 24, I think we can feel the heaviness of sin. Sin violently entered humanity, stealing the hope of life as it should have been. And as it once was, evil, evil has irrevocably corrupted the world and there's no cleansing of the hands stained with guilt or any cleansing of the conscience stained with shame. And so we're left asking, what now? What will come of humanity? And in verses 22 through 24, we see that the death penalty is carried out. Banishment from the garden cutting off access to the tree of life. Adam and Eve's rebellion has led to exile. God sent the man out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. Adam and Eve have lost the privileged status of guarding the garden because they had become what they were guarding against. They had become the enemy of God. Now the cherubim guards the entrance to the garden and the tree of life. You know, one of the great truths that we see in Genesis 3, that Genesis 3 teaches us, is that the antidote for our mortality, for our death, has always been found in the context of a right relationship with God. The antidote for our mortality has always been found in the context of a right relationship with God. This was the case For Adam and Eve, this is the case with all who've come after Adam and Eve. You know, there's a glimmer of hope in verses 20 and 21. In spite of their sin and exile, we learn that Adam names his wife Eve, which means living, our mother of all the living. In other words, the human race wouldn't die out. They would continue to carry on the blessing of being fruitful and multiplying, though life would be accompanied by great pain until their death the blessing of God is still available, but it's mitigated. It's lessened. And according to verse 21, God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve. Now, we're not told if God killed an animal 
or if the animal is already dead. It's possible that death existed in the world before Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve were created mortal. Do we think that animals were created immortal? The tree of life was for Adam and Eve. And if sin removed them from the antidote to their mortality, isn't it possible that animals lived and died as part of God's creation from the beginning? We know scientifically that death existed at least at a cellular level because Adam and Eve had skin. And we know that the epidermis is made up of a layer of dead skin cells. We would affirm plant death, the death of plant life. Regardless, I I don't think that's the point of the garments of skin. I think the point is God meets Adam and Eve where they are in their shame and guilt and covers their shame and guilt by an act of his grace. And this highlights God's grace toward his image bearers. The biggest problem with Adam and Eve's sin wasn't some change in human nature or or, or their heart condition. The greatest problem was they were now distant from God. They were removed from living in the blessing of God's sacred space, and they lost the ability to continually walk with God, to enjoy and to know God's presence on a continual basis. Last week, we asked the question, how do we meet God in a fallen world? And the answer was something like this. Meeting God begins with recognizing and owning that we, like Adam and Eve, have sinned against God. And because of our sin, we too have been exiled from a right relationship with God. But the hope of revelation through God's word is that we can be brought back into a right relationship with God. And this is through, get this, this is through the high priestly work of Jesus Christ, the one who has made a new covenant between God and humanity. Because what was lost in the garden through sin, what was lost, continual fellowship with God, has been now restored through Christ. And so listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. While it's been restored through Christ, it hasn't been yet fully restored. So 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Or Romans 8, 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who, listen, have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await or we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So get this. Christians, having received the deposit of the Holy Spirit, not only have the guarantee of eternal inheritance, we have the privilege of direct and continual communion with God. That's incredible. What Adam and Eve lost in the garden, being in God's presence continually, walking with him, that has now been restored through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's worth celebrating. That's glorious. That's incredible. So there's another question that remains. How then do we deal with evil in our current world? We said evil has been unleashed How do we deal with evil in our current world? Well, two ways. One, as image bearers, 
we work against it. As image bearers, we work against it, recognizing that the place and presence of evil in God's creation will one day cease. We do this through proclaiming and living the hope of Jesus Christ to all peoples, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. We take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world because the gospel of Jesus Christ is our only defense against evil. It's our only defense against the spiritual forces of evil in this world. How do we deal with evil in our current world? As image bearers, we work against it by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, how do we deal with evil in our current world? Dependence on God. Realize that dependence on God is far better than living independently of God. Dependence on God is far better than living independently of God. The rest of the Old Testament and New Testament is the story of God extending his grace and mercy to his people, calling them to be a people who depend on him, a people who place him at the center of their lives and build all of community life around him. That's what we see as we read through the Old Testament and the tabernacle that goes with the people of Israel and moves around and why the temple is built in the center of Jerusalem. This is the point. That God calls his people to depend on him, to center their lives around him. It's, it's the story of God choosing to love those who choose to disobey. It's the story of God's redeeming grace. Not that God simply and graciously covers the shame and guilt of our sin, of Adam and Eve's sin with garments. But that in Christ, he became sin for us to suffer our punishment, and to restore the hope of eternal life. That which we forfeited when we ourselves, every one of us, chose to be rebels and to disobey God. This is the hope of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has redeemed us. That he satisfied the penalty and made atonement for our sin. The last question I want to answer this morning is, what do we hope for in eternity? What do we hope? Where's all this going, right? (laughs) Where are we ending up? Are we hoping for a, a restoration of Eden? Is that what we're longing for? Is that what we're wanting? When Christ returns, there'll be a new Jerusalem, as described in the last two chapters of Revelation. And in the new Jerusalem, it says that there won't be a temple. Instead, because Revelation 21, 22 says it's a place where the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb, is there. They, they are there, and, and they are its temple. The, the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple, the Lamb being Christ. Then it also says that there's a river that flows through the city. And instead of one tree of life, get this, there'll be one on each side of the river. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, Revelation 22.2, yielding fruit in every month, and then the leaves of the trees are, are for the healing of the nations. There are two trees of life. In other words, the end is more than a restoration of Eden. It's better than Eden. It surpasses Eden. In Eden, there was a possibility of a fall. 
It was a probationary period, but not so in the end. The message of the Bible is that we can look forward to dwelling in God's glorious presence forever. And he has sent one, Christ, who has paved the way for us to have restoration with God. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who comes to the Father must come through me. Do you know that this morning? Do you know that Jesus is the only way to the Father? Is Jesus your Savior? I pray that he is, but if he's not, I want you to know this morning I want to pray with you and talk to you, listen to you about questions you may have of what it means to trust in Jesus as the Savior of your life. After the service, I will be on this side of the worship center um, by this cross, and I would love to talk to you more about what it means to know Jesus as Savior. As we think about encountering evil in our current world, let us take this from this morning. Let us remember that it is better, far better, to live in dependence on God than to live independently from God. And let us remember that God has called us to be image bearers in the midst of the world that he has sent us into. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we have read and considered your word this morning, um, I pray, God, that you would make it clear to us God, that you would continue to work in our hearts and minds to just create a sense of, an overwhelming sense of, um, of your glory, of your greatness. And even though this Genesis may be challenging some of the, the ways that we have thought in the past, Lord, I know that it's not diminishing who you are. And so I pray, God, that you would be exalted in each of our lives that you would be magnified, and Lord, that you would lead us as your people to walk in truth, to rejoice in your salvation in our lives. Thank you for your Holy Spirit's dwelling within us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand this morning?